If you like this show, you should check out some of the other shows that we create over at society-13.com. That's society-13, the number, dot com. On that network, you can find great shows about the paranormal, music, you can find story, talk shows, all kinds of great stuff. Head on over to society-13.com and check out everything we have to offer. Today's episode of The Wicked Library is brought to you by HorrorMade.com. From horror haikus to author and filmmaker interviews to original art and dark fiction reviews, HorrorMade.com has a terrifically fun collection of dark things that are sure to delight. Whether you're looking for a little inspiration or maybe a place to share your short stories and creepy artwork, HorrorMade.com is your delightfully dark home for horror. Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at ShadowsAtTheDoor.com. Hello, boys and ghouls. It's John here from Red Horse Radio. You are currently listening to The Wicked Library. The important thing to remember is don't look the librarian in the eye. He's like my grandmother. He can sense your fear. Warning. The Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I'm your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> The Screenplay I quit smoking 20 years ago, and I live alone. It's no wonder the strong odor of cigarettes nudged me out of a shallow sleep. I dozed off in front of the TV, watching a Twilight Zone marathon on cable. The last thing I remembered was veteran actress Agnes Moorhead's character battling tiny space aliens in the attic of her lonely farmhouse in the 1961 Season 2, Episode 51, The Invaders. That story was one of my favorites. Hours later, as my brain stirred itself into something approaching consciousness, I heard Rod Serling's distinctive voice as clearly as if he were in the next room. 
since Serling only appeared at the beginning and end of each show, I couldn't tell if the episode was just starting or winding up. My eyes were still closed, but being more or less awake, I waited for the music soundtrack to clue me in. Oddly enough, it never came. Mr. Serling kept talking. I'd seen every episode many times and knew the dialogue by heart. I should have been able to decipher which story was on, but I couldn't. And then, he coughed. What the hell was that? I thought. Rod Serling never coughed on his show. He coughed again, laughed, and said, These things are going to kill me. An unfamiliar male voice with a New England accent said, I thought they already did. Stephen, you are a master of the obvious, a third male voice chimed in. The cultured baritone voice was unmistakable. Holy crap, I thought. That sounds like Orson Welles. Then, all three voices laughed. My eyes snapped open. I sat bolt upright and stared at the TV set. But the screen was dark. I cursed the cable company for managing to lose the image portion of what had to be a previously unknown and never broadcast gem of an episode. Shit. Why am I paying for such crappy cable service? I reached for the remote control, hoping against hope that I might be able to coax the picture back on. But the remote was missing. Ah, he's finally awake, I heard Orson Welles say. That's when I realized the voices were coming from behind me, in the dining room, and that the ceiling light was on in there. An icy chill tiptoed down my spine, and every hair on my body stood on end. I slowly turned around and gasped at the sight that greeted my eyes. There, at my dining room table, sat Rod Serling, Orson Welles, and Stephen King, all wreathed in a haze of cigarette smoke. I got to my feet and stood there, mouth agape, eyes stinging from the smoke, wondering if I'd lost my mind. Mr. Serling took one last drag from a short cigarette and stubbed it out in one of my great-grandmother's ceramic candy dishes. Hope you don't mind, but I couldn't find any ashtrays, he said with a sheepish grin. The candy dish was piled high with crushed cigarette butts. Next to the dish, and a soft pack of unfiltered camels, was my remote control. He noticed me glance at it. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Mr. Serling said as he retrieved a fresh camel from the half-empty pack. The programs were distracting us, so I borrowed your remote and turned off the TV. He winked and tossed the digital control to me. Despite being in a state of shock, I managed to catch the remote without even realizing it. Sure, I mean, no, no problem, I stammered while staring at each of my uninvited guests. Mr. Surly appeared exactly as he did when the Twilight Zone first aired. He leaned back in his chair, struck a match, lit his camel, and inhaled deeply. After blowing a perfectly circular smoke ring, he smiled contentedly as the nicotine halo hovered over Orson Welles' head. 
Mr. Wells, sporting a gray beard, looked reasonably fit, but decidedly older and heavier than he did in his War of the Worlds and Citizen Kane Prime. I watched as he poured himself a hefty shot of sherry from my previously unopened bottle of Harvey's. Hey, I was saving that for a special occasion, I said, sounding a bit testier than I'd intended. Not that I'd expected to celebrate anything in the near future, but it was my bottle. Would have liked to have been asked. Mr. Wells apparently noted my foul mood. He raised his glass to me in a mock toast. I believe our presence here should count as a special occasion. Wouldn't you agree, Stephen? He said, turning toward King. Mr. King, unfortunately, was a sorry sight. Battered, bruised, and bandaged from head to toe, his eyes were bloodshot with dark circles under them that matched the black and blue patches of skin visible on the unbandaged portions of his face. King winced as he shook his head at Wells. The world doesn't revolve around you, fat boy. You should have asked first, like I told you when we got here. Now that you mention it, I said, folding my arms across my chest. What are the three of you doing in my house anyway? And how did you get in? I mean, this is private property. And besides, you're all dead and... My voice trailed off as I realized what I'd just said. Dear God, I'm actually talking to three dead men. King flapped his good arm in disgust. Now just a minute there, Mr. Dunn... He glanced at the notepad on the table. Uh, Dunmire, I'm not... Repeat not N-O-T dead yet. Tell him, Rod. Serling looked forward and flicked the ash off his camel. That's true, he said, pointing the cigarette at King. Stephen is still among the living. He's under heavy sedation at a main hospital bed at the moment, recovering from yet another hit-and-run accident. Stunned, I muttered. But CNN said the Chevy Volt driver was the only... They jumped the gun and got it wrong, as usual, Wells said. But, as a result, Stephen rates as an honorary dead man this evening. And that's why he's here with us. And that gets us back to my original question. Why are you all here? I demanded. Serling crossed his legs and flicked more ash into the candy dish. It's a bit complicated, but... Well... Let's just say we're here to do the, for the want of a better term, the screenplay for your life. What? I said, shocked, honored, and a little humbled that three such famous and talented individuals would consider my life worth writing about. You mean you're actually going to do the story of my life as a screenplay for for a movie or or a television show? Is that it? No, no, no. Well said. You don't understand. It won't be the story of your life. He made air quotes with his fingers. The screenplay, as it were, will be the story for your life. You're right. I, I don't understand. Serling blew another smoke ring. Perhaps I can help. You see, when you die... You still get to work doing what you did best in life. In our case, writers and directors get assigned to map out the plan or bare-bones outline for people's lives. They still have free will and all that, 
but the plans we produce act like a movie director's shooting guide or storyboard. For simplicity's sake, I like to refer to it as a screenplay. Each individual is really their own producer, director, and leading man or woman in playing out the story of their life. They have the ultimate say in how things turn out. Our screenplay simply helps nudge things along. I hate the term screenplay, King interrupted. That's only because so few of your stories translate suitably to the silver screen, Wells said, with a devilish glint in his eyes. And that is the reason you're here, as a mere understudy, to learn how to write properly and to... You boring, bloated blimp, King shot back. At least I'm not Johnny One Note. It was all downhill after Citizen Kane, wasn't it? Mr. Wonderkind, Mr. Greatest Movie Ever Made, Mr. Enough, Serling shouted. He looked at me and grabbed his forehead with both hands. Damn it, they're going to drive me nuts. It was easier working with Shakespeare and Milton than these two. He sighed, took a deep breath, and tapped a finger on a pile of blank writing paper. Okay, guys, we got to get going on this. Mr. Dunmire needs us to do a bang-up job on his life. King looked at the stack of paper and frowned. Why can't we use computers, or, or typewriters at least? Sterling blew triple smoke rings. Stephen, I told you, we're going strictly old school tonight. All right, gentlemen, let's begin. I stood there, dumbfounded, watching each of them write my full name, Daniel Edward the III, across the top of their individual pages. Sterling printed in neat block letters with a disposable ballpoint. Wells produced an expensive-looking fountain pen and gave his cursive script a bold John Hancock flourish that threatened to run off the paper. King simply bitched up a storm trying to write with a sharp pencil in his non-dominant hand. His other bound in a plaster cast, two fingers straight out with embedded metal pins. King's scribbling was so pitiful I didn't think even he could read it. They bickered back and forth as they wrote, seldom looking up from their efforts, each certain they had the better plot going. By the time they reached the middle of the third page, I cleared my throat. (sighs) Excuse me for interrupting, but... Serling tilted his head in my direction and raised an eyebrow. I felt intimidated but pressed on. Gentlemen, are you going to consult me at all? I mean, why else bother to come here? We are dealing with my life, you know. I had their annoyed, but undivided attention. Serling simply blew another smoke ring and grinned without saying a single word. I suppose we could let you have some input in these proceedings, Wells said. His fountain pen leaking ink on a suddenly blank page. What would you like to propose? Sweat ran down the back of my neck, my mouth as dry as the dusty gift bottle of vermouth I never opened. I'd like to have some say in how the rest of my life goes. That's only fair, isn't it? That 
would present you with a very rare opportunity, Wells said, drumming his chubby fingers on the table. Please realize that very few individuals ever get to have a say-so in these matters. Be that as it may, it would behoove you to speak your piece quickly, since we are unable to hold back time forever. What? I stammered. King groaned. His glasses slid to the end of his nose. Why not take a look outside? After all, it's not like we've got anything better to do than wait around for you. I walked to the front window, pulled back the curtain, and let out an audible gasp. Across the street, the Olsen boy was frozen on his blue BMX bicycle, mouth open and one arm outstretched, the other on his handlebars, both feet on the pedals. His red Irish setter caught in mid-stride, all four paws off the ground at the bike's rear wheel. Mrs. Olsen stood on her front porch with a wooden spoon raised in her left hand. Oh, shit, I mumbled as I opened the living room door and stepped out onto my small front porch. There was no breeze. The sun was low in the sky, and the street lamps were just coming on. It was eerily quiet. No sound came from my next-door neighbor Harry's lawnmower engine. He was stopped in mid-push, his pudgy arm stretched out with the mower hanging over the incline of his yard. There was no rushing sound from the interstate highway a couple of blocks away. Overhead, a Boeing 757 jetliner on final approach cast its long stationary shadow on the street. This is insane, I muttered, shaking my head in disbelief. Even my nose detected the strangeness of the moment. There was no pine scent from my recently trimmed evergreen shrubs, no smell of cut grass mingled with lawnmower exhaust, no sweet fragrance from Mrs. Amberson's prized lilac bushes. Instead, the atmosphere was heavy, charged with static, bristling with the acrid taint of ozone. Unfortunately, I could still detect the overpowering stench of Serling's cigarette smoke wafting from the open door behind me. I even caught a hint of alcohol swirling over the ice in Wells's glass. Serling's clipped laugh unnerved me as he tapped me on the shoulder. Come on back in, Mr. Dunmire, and have a seat. I left the door open and followed Serling to the dining room. He turned toward me and grinned. I suppose this seems like you're starring in your own personal Twilight Zone episode today. I nodded in stunned silence, finally aware of how short Serling was compared to my six-foot-two-inch height. This trim, wiry ex-paratrooper could have been more than much over five-foot-four inches, if that. He graciously pulled out the last chair. A half-glass of Harvey's on the rocks sat on the table before me. I hadn't heard the tinkling of ice dropping in the tumbler. I took a long drink and asked myself what the hell was going on, sitting here with three dead men. Well, two dead and one on the way. King scowled. I am not dead. And no, it is not a matter of any time soon. 
I felt my face go pale as I realized they could all read my mind. I knocked back a quick slug of Harvey's, nearly choking on a piece of ice. I sputtered. I'm sorry, Mr. King. Really, I am. King drummed his pencil's eraser on the table and shot an annoyed glance in Wells' direction. The clock is ticking on these proceedings. His statement was metaphorical, of course, since the clocks were stopped. I sat in my high-backed chair, feeling like an errant schoolboy, glass in hand, and my elbow on the table. I couldn't think for a moment. If you guys can read my mind, why do you need me to tell you anything? I finally said, hoping to buy more time. Serling tapped another camo out of his pack and lit up. It would seem, Mr. Dunmire, that you are one of those rare individuals who cannot be read. In such cases, we often call Central and have them send someone down to help us out. But, I said, trailing off as he raised a hand for silence. Yes, Mr. Dunmire, we can read some of your thoughts, but only those directly pertaining to us. Serling blew a misshapen smoke ring and frowned. Regrettably, we are unable to plumb the immeasurable depths of your being. We find ourselves thwarted at every turn in attempting to uncover your innermost desires. Our efforts to understand what lies at the very center of your soul, the nub of your nature, are stymied in a desperate and ultimately futile search to discover what you want or hope to get out of life. He pointed his cigarette at me. In that regard, Mr. Dunmire, you are a cipher, a veritable blank slate to us. <laughs> Bravo, Wells said, clapping his hands. I couldn't have stated the situation better myself. King merely grumbled. That sounds like the intro monologue to one of your damn TV shows. And besides, Wells continued, if we could adequately read your mind, we would not need to be here now, thus precluding the opportunity to share this fine bottle of spirits with you. He drained his glass and clumsily slammed it down on the table, barely missing the candy dish full of Serling cigarette butts. So please, Mr. Dunmire, enlighten us. I shifted nervously in my seat. It feels kind of... Well, really weird discussing that sort of thing. Wells poured himself more Harvey's. How so, Mr. Dunmire? You know, laying out all my thoughts and feelings for a room full of guys. An image of the three of them dressed as the ugliest women I had ever seen popped into my head. Oh, please don't ever do that again, I yelled. They all laughed while I tried to delete the dreadful image from my mind. Look, what I really want is a family. A few kids, a pretty woman for a wife. Hopefully not one that looks like any of you, by the way. Is that too much to ask? You mean you don't want to do anything grand or exciting? Just have a family, King said, sneering. What about climbing the pyramids of Egypt? Trekking the frozen expanse of Antarctica, witnessing the snake charmers of New Delhi, or traveling the globe, searching for treasured artifacts. I shook my head. No. King snapped his pencil in two. Rod, I thought you said this one would be interesting. He's boring. B-O-R-I-N-G. 
boring and a waste of my skills. I could be at home recuperating, dreaming up my next bestseller. Disgusted, he threw the pencil pieces on the floor. Dunmire, you could save us a lot of time and trouble if you just married that widow Kajanowitz down the street. She's kind of pretty. Plus, she has five kids and a German shepherd. My voice rose like a girl. What? No, not the widow. She hates men. Her kids are rotten little brats, and her dog is a vicious, flea-ridden canine psychopath. I took a deep breath. Look, I was thinking more along the lines of a pleasant, younger woman, single, intelligent, attractive, maybe with a name like Rachel, so someone I could meet and fall in love with. You know, more like your typical romance situation. Sort of like a... Like some damn harlequin potboiler, King said. You know, this is enough to make me start drinking again. Wells looked him over and grinned. Excellent idea, Stephen. Your writing was much better when you were in the bottle. King muttered something under his breath, grabbed a fresh pencil, and began scratching furiously on his pad. My living room walls swirled, and I found myself alone in total darkness. There was a creak and the groan of wood settling as the darkness faded. A fire crackled and brightened a cozy, rustic living room. I was seated at a large oak desk with a steaming mug of black coffee sitting to the left of my typewriter and a cigarette burning slowly in the ashtray in front of me. I picked up the coffin nail, took a drag, and set it back down. I grabbed the mug and found the coffee warm and good. Just a hair below too hot to drink. Just the way I liked it. I swallowed, feeling the heat travel down, warming me. I set the mug on my desk, opened the top right drawer, and pulled out a half-empty bottle of Bushmills. I tipped a little into the mug, bringing the level of the liquid back to full. I stirred the whiskey into the coffee with my trusty red pen, tapped the pen on the mug's rim, and brought my poor man's Irish coffee to my lips for a long swallow. Ah, now that's a good cup of joe, I announced to the room. Oddly enough, I wasn't sure I believed what I had just said. Part of me seemed to be howling in silent protest that I found black coffee and especially the combination of cigarettes, black coffee, and whiskey, quite foul. But there I was, smoking and sipping away and smacking my lips. I guess I liked it after all. I paused to look out the window and watch the snow fall. Winter in Maine, I said dryly to myself. One of these days, I'm going to get a nice place in Florida be done with the bitter cold and scraping ice off the car. Maybe some place in the Keys. The lot was a nice town, but living here was getting old. As I watched the snowflakes drift down, a pair of headlights appeared on the top of the hill. I wondered who could be coming down here at this time of night. My cabin sat at the end of a long, narrow road. This time of year, the only vehicle I regularly saw 
was the mailman's old Ford Explorer. But it was far too late for Hank to be making a mail run. Not to mention it was Sunday. The oncoming lights brightened quickly. Too quickly. Whoever was behind the wheel was traveling far too fast for road conditions. I watched, mesmerized, as the driver tried to turn and follow the last curve, but lost control. The car skidded, spun, tumbled over sideways a few times before coming to rest in the middle of my lawn. I ran to my front door, grabbed my coat, and hauled ass out to the wreck. The snow was cold as it forced its way up my pant legs, but I kept running. I reached the overturned vehicle, dropped to my knees, sliding the last couple of feet, and peered inside. The glass was shattered into a gummy web and started peeling away. A mass of blonde curls hung from the woman's head, and she turned to face me. Are you okay? I asked her. Her face was a mask of fright. She looked at me, her eyes darting over my face as if searching for something. You you have to get me out of here. We need to get to a church or something, she said, her words ramming and tumbling over each other as she spoke. I found it odd that she said, a church. But I reasoned she was just shaken up. She must have met a hospital. Sure, just relax. I'll get you out. She tried to nod, but found doing it upside down to be difficult. Just hurry, she said. You know, I saw them. They'll be after me. We'll be after you. I reached through the ruined window and felt for the seatbelt buckle. The vampires! Salem's lot is full of damn blood-sucking vampires! I was holding her and just about to press the button when there was a deep laugh from behind me. That's bullshit, it said. You can't just write the poor bastard into one of your stories. I found myself back in my dining room, seated at the table. It was Wells speaking, and his face was pink with amusement, and perhaps a little of the drink. No one said that was a rule. King tossed his pencil down on the notepad in front of him. He crossed his arms over his chest as best he could and glared at the bearded older man. Come on, Wells said. You have to know that's cheating. Besides, what's romantic about being in a town full of vampires? He asked to meet a nice woman and settled down. You threw him into a horror novel. Yeah, but it was going somewhere. Fighting through intense situations together can bring people closer. She was going to be his love interest. I agree with Mr. Wells, I said. I'd rather not have to fight off vampires. Whatever, King said and stood up. He walked over to the fridge, opened it, and started rummaging around inside. Wells fiddled with his fountain pen for a moment. I think Mr. Dunmire was looking for something a little more down-to-earth. With a dog, maybe. King's voice came from inside the refrigerator. Sure, let's go for boring. If he wants a dog, why don't you guys get a hold of Koontz? If there's anything you can count on with him, it's some magically brilliant canine showing up. Crap, don't you have anything other than salami? I like salami, I said defensively. Besides, I I wasn't expecting guests tonight. King sighed and pulled out the salami and mustard and made his way to the counter. I was hoping for a nice bologna and cheese, 
But you're single, so I'm sure every sandwich you make is your favorite, and to hell with what your guests might like. Where's your bread? I don't suppose you have rye, do you? You are not my guests. I never invited you in here. You and your your vampire crap. Forget the freaking bread and references to Salem's lot, Serling shouted. We're getting nowhere, and we don't have much time left. King didn't respond. He just opened kitchen drawers until he found the bread and began making his sandwich. Amateur hour, Serling muttered, shaking his head. (sighs) Okay, Mr. Dunmire, we'll give this a second shot. Serling dug another cigarette out of the pack and lit it. He grabbed his ballpoint pen and started writing. For what seemed like hours, Serling scribbled away while Wells gleefully tossed grandiose suggestions to King and scowled. As they read portions aloud, I would give my feedback and try to guide them into writing me a happy, yet feasible ending, much to King's dismay. Then, Serling stopped, double-checked his work, passed it to Wells, and lit up another camel. Wells murmured to himself as he scanned the pages and gave them to King. Their faces were like granite. I couldn't get a read on them. Were the last 20 pages good or bad? King finally finished, looked up, and crossed his eyes even further than they are naturally. He tossed it back to Wells, saying, Really? Wells sighed and nodded to Serling. I'm afraid this time... I must agree with the lad. He passed the screenplay back to Serling, who puffed thoughtfully on his camel before speaking. Yes, it seems we've come to a crucial juncture. Mr. Serling took the last 20 pages, ripped them in half, and tossed them into the air. The pieces immediately disappeared in a flash of light before they could float to the floor. So what now? I asked, suddenly frightened by the lack of a final act. King and Wells both leaned forward and stared at Serling. Serling lowered his head in resignation and relaxed his shoulders. Funny. I hadn't realized how stiff his posture was until he allowed himself to slouch a bit. Now we call in. Serling paused in his characteristic way. The ghostwriter taken aback, I was confused for maybe the hundredth time since walking into the pungent fumes of burning tobacco. Another ghost? I said. King piped up. I am not a... Serling calmed him with a raised hand. This is the ghostwriter. Sent to doctor whatever screenplays we struggle with. He's only been with us for a short while. And sometimes his rewrites are golden. And sometimes, well, we'll see. From upstairs, I heard the toilet flush. I jumped and pointed. What the hell? King leaned toward me with his stubby fingers straining against the metal rods. He says he does some of his best brainstorming up there. He sits in the bathroom of people he's going to write for? I asked. King sneered slightly. No. Not their bathrooms. Just yours. It's his favorite spot. 
I shook my head like an Etch-A-Sketch trying to erase that image when I realized whoever was squatting in my water closet was about to come down. I heard some whistling and footsteps descending the stairs. Transfixed, I wasn't sure who I'd see come around the corner at the far end of the living room. Poe? Fleming? Miller? Hitchcock? Roddenberry? An unassuming pale man with red hair above a receding hairline, dressed in a Hawaiian shirt and cargo shorts, came over and smiled. He looked like Conan O'Brien with Ron Howard's follicle challenge scalp. Nodding to the three writers at my table, he said, Ni hao. Wells chimed in, undoubtedly cued by the blank look on my face. That's Chinese for hello, Mr. Dunmire. I turned back. Conan O'Brien speaks Chinese? The man let out a hearty laugh. (laughs) I'm not Conan O'Brien, but thank you for expecting me to have more hair. He shook my hand. You can call me Joss. I was at a loss. I don't know any classic screenwriters, authors, or poets whose first names are Joss. He cocked an eyebrow. Obviously, he could read my immediate thoughts as well. Uh, No, sir, not classic, at least not yet. Serling spoke up. Mr. Whedon here is the showrunner responsible for some recent television successes. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Firefly, Dollhouse. Wells added, Let's not forget his forays onto the silver screen with such fare as Toy Story, Cabin in the Woods, that Avengers comic book adaptation, and the Bard's very own Much Ado About Nothing. King added proudly, And he's read everything I ever wrote. Then it dawned on me. But Joss Whedon isn't dead or near death. He gave me a look like a schoolboy caught in a lie. Well, Rod Serling filled in the blanks. In a way, he did die. You see, he had pinned all his hopes and dreams on a certain motion picture idea in 1992. He was so hopeful he made a certain deal. It would be the greatest epic success, even if it cost him his very life. So what happened? King spit out the next words like they were bile. It tanked. Wells provided a more diplomatic translation. It failed to become the grand cinematic masterpiece it was meant to be. The studio got a hold of it and twisted it into something different. Whedon began to speak, now in a more somber tone. I created my first Buffy the Vampire script, hoping it would become a film icon. One of those stories that made people want to live in it. Not the movie it became. Serling continued, For all intents and purposes, Mr. Whedon's dream was ended until he entered The Twilight Zone, I offered excitedly. Serling paused briefly and did an eye roll. A coffee shop in Burbank. He slipped on some spilt creamer and fell and hit his head. King picked up the narration. That's when he came face to face with the dealmaker. Who's the dealmaker? King smacked his forehead with his good hand. 
Monty Hall. Who else? Remember, we told you that in death, you continue the careers you had in life. Are you sure your name is Dunmeyer and not dumbass? My brow furrowed. Isn't Monty Hall still alive, too? King just pointed at himself and Whedon like a constipated mime, a blood vessel in his forehead throbbing. Whedon reacted with a careful, Okay. Anyway, I was given the choice of accepting my death and the end of my Buffy dream or agreeing to rework it as a TV series and be on call as a script doctor for this particular writer's pool. I chose door number one and didn't pay attention to the goat next to the hay. Basically, the trade-off was every television show I created would get canceled before its time and no matter how hard I'd try, I'd end up back at Fox. Serling added, the price of making a deal in. He waited for the tension to build. Hollywood. I just stood there, mouth agape for a while, as my uninvited house guests all looked at me in an uncomfortable quiet. Orson Welles broke the silence by saying, How about we get back on track? The next several hours were spent with Whedon furiously typing away on a laptop that materialized in front of him. Uh, Apparently, he wasn't beholden to the old-school stipulation. Sterling Wells occasionally peered over his shoulders, and even King nodded in approval from time to time. Of course, I thought. There must be vampires or something in there. Joss looked up and answered my silent aside. Close. Finally, a stack of papers printed out of thin air, and there were 80 more pages to the screenplay for my life. Joss handed out copies to all of us to do a reading around the table, each with her own part to read. As before, I was overwhelmed by a swirl of black and found myself sitting in a modest yet stylish condo with a sort of hipster decor. front door swung open, and in she strode, this luscious young female in a tight skirt, who was equal parts beautiful, witty, capable, and independent, the very epitome of the liberated yet approachable woman. She smiled a warm smile at me and said, if you ask me, this saving the world stuff is murder on my Giuseppe Zanotti's. She indicated the sky-high patent leather platform pumps on her feet. I chortled and answered, That's okay, sweetheart. You're exceptionally good at what you do, and it's not like the Zanatis are irreplaceable. She snuggled up next to me real quick and examined the glittering ring on her finger. It's hard to believe that I'm finally going to be a missus. I'm still trying to figure out how you were able to afford such a massive rock. I shook my head. No, the real mystery is how I was able to get one on your finger. Suddenly, there was the sound of screeching tires outside. We jumped to the picture window over our Charles Eames designer couch and watched as headlights, again, from my perspective, became brighter and much too rapidly, and a car swerved at the turn in the road. The driver lost control, and the car flipped over. My lady turned to me and shrugged. Never a dull moment, 
She tore out through the door, headed to the accident site. The resolute look of an experienced first responder on her gorgeous face. That's what I loved the most about her. Well, that and her tight skirts. As I turned to grab the first aid kit we kept by the door, I could hear her say, Are you? But the sound of a blood-curdling howl drowned out her voice, and I realized we'd need the silver daggers, too. Just as I grabbed them, I heard an explosion. The whole room lit up from flames blasting through the window. Glass shattered and sprayed in. I coughed and realized the black smoke smelled oddly like that of a cigarette. I clawed my way to the open cavity that was no longer covered with expensive, UV-reflective thermopanes. There, lying next to the smoldering car, was the woman I loved and pursued. Zenodilus, and no longer breathing. I'd finally won her heart and proposed, and she had said yes, making me the happiest man in the world. Now... She lay dead as the unmistakable sound of werewolves grew closer. I couldn't believe how unfair it all was. What kind of cruel world was I living in? There was a harsh, racking cough, and I heard Rod Serling say, I admire the twist, but were we supposed to be shaping a happy life here? In a flash, I was sitting in my dining room again, looking at Serling. Wells, King, and Whedon, all clutching pages for my screenplay. I was back. Whedon looked at Serling, grinned widely, and said, Heh, ain't I a stinker? I tossed the papers over my shoulder. No, no, no! This is not what I agreed to! Whedon folded his hands in front of him, almost contritely, and began, You see... Tension, conflict, and pain make the characters grow and develop. You should give the audience what they need, not what they want. I sighed and pointed towards the door. Please leave. Whedon didn't seem particularly vexed. He simply stood and shook his head. As you wish, he muttered, crossed my living room, and made his way back up the stairs. I was about to protest when I realized that he was returning to his favorite room. I turned and gave icy stares to the trio of miscreant writers still seated at my table. King spoke up first. Hey, be thankful we didn't bring in Lucas. He would have rewritten your childhood to completely contradict your adult life, explained your faith as a byproduct of microbiology, and provided you with an anthropomorphized duck as your sidekick. Totally exasperated, I gritted my teeth mentally counted to ten and repeated my earlier question. So, now what? You are a conundrum, Mr. Dunmire, Serling said. He tried to make a smoke ring, but only succeeded in blowing out a long stream of smoke. Frustrated, he flicked ash from his camel, missing the candy dish by several inches. I wondered how many packs of camels he'd gone through this evening, since my dish was piled high to overflowing with crushed cigarette butts. He's no conundrum. He's just being difficult. King winced as he turned in his seat towards me. You need to give us more to work with. Living happily ever after with the girl of your dreams isn't enough by any measure. Wells chimed in. I'm afraid Stephen has a point. 
What exactly are your desires, your motivation? He looked around the house. Surely you aspire to more than this, he said, gesturing with an open palm. This? My voice came out as a harsh bark. What's wrong with this? I waved my own hand around. I was perfectly happy with this until all of you showed up. Perfectly happy has more than salami in the fridge, King muttered. I like, L-I-K-E, salami, damn it. Maybe it was the smoke irritating my eyes and sending me into nicotine cravings I thought I'd overcome. Or maybe it was the nauseating feeling of pulling an all-nighter, even though time had ground to a halt. More likely, it was the disappointment of seeing these icons I always admired now failing me. Whatever it was, I no longer cared how my life was written as long as I wouldn't have to deal with these three jokers anymore. I trudged over to the couch, picked up the TV remote, and flopped back down in the same position I'd been in when all this began. My guests were talking in hushed tones in the living room, but I didn't care what they thought or said now. I turned the television on to drown out their conversation before realizing it would probably be paused in time just like everything else. Just as I went to hit the remote off button, the screen came to life with the crisp black and white images of another Twilight Zone, unreeling as they should. It was the haunting 1960 Season 1, Episode 30, A Stop at Willoughby. The coincidence of seeing a story in which a man under great stress dreams of escaping to a life in an idyllic town made me smile bitterly. I couldn't help wondering if I was fated to unintentionally step off a speeding train and die like he did. As I punched up the volume, the revolting yet alluring smell of tobacco smoke wafted over to me like a noxious cloud, and a blank sheet of white paper obstructed my view. I rolled toward the arm holding the paper to find an apologetic-looking Rod Serling standing over me, a cigarette burning uncomfortably close to his lips. Why don't you try? It wasn't enough to diffuse my anger. I snatched the paper from his hand, crumpled it in my fist, and got to my feet. My life is not a horror novel or a pop culture venue, and I sure as hell don't hope to die alone pining for some damn sled named Rosebud, I yelled, glaring at the appropriate man in turn. With clenched fists, I stared down at Serling, and I don't recall ever wanting to be in a Twilight Zone episode. Okay, the last part wasn't entirely true, but after this evening's experience, I'd firmly changed my mind on the subject. The three men stared blankly at me. Serling's lips pulled back into a knowing grin as he removed the cigarette stub. He broke the standoff by walking over to the candy dish to snuff out the smoke, which was suddenly of great interest to everyone at the table after the discomfort of my outburst. I took the opportunity to storm out the front door. At first, I had no purpose or destination in mind and angrily forged ahead, determined to put as much distance as possible between myself and the three uninvited co-pilots of my life. The street was in better shape than the sidewalk, so I figured, what the hell, and charged right down the middle of it. It felt liberating, but more than that... 
a little weird to weave around stationary vehicles and walk past neighbors and pets paused in the middle of everyday actions. There was even a pickpocket frozen in the act of relieving old Mr. Jenkins of the wallet in his back pocket. I stopped for a moment, lifted the wallet from the thief's skilled fingers, put it in Mr. Jenkins' vest pocket, and replaced it with the thief's own wallet. Satisfied with my good deed, I continued on my way. The events of the evening kept replaying in my head, calling attention to all the ways I'd been wronged. The angry thoughts fueled my indignation, goading me to walk even faster. That's when I realized I still had the crumpled sheet of paper in my left hand. I shoved it into my back pocket and kept walking. I may have been mad. Okay, I was damn mad, but I was no litter bug. Thinking about Orson Welles draining my bottle of Harvey's, I decided it was time to do some serious drinking myself. I turned up Webster Street and headed for a place called The Corner Bar, located in the middle of the block. Yes, the joint was intentionally misnamed. It was a stale joke, almost as tacky as the establishment itself. But there, at least, I'd have a fine selection of spirits to choose from. Best of all, these were spirits that wouldn't talk back and write ridiculous drivel while trying to kill off the imaginary love of my life or feed me to fictional creatures. Thankfully, the time stop happened before the bar closed. I walked through the front door, propped open to let in light and provide circulation to compensate for a broken air conditioner and notoriously smoky environment. Even before learning of an anti-smoking ordinance loophole, the bar's owner refused to ban smoking as an act of protest against big government intrusion in the affairs of small business owners. However admirable his public defiance may have been, it earned him a multitude of fines and was also the reason I seldom frequented the establishment. But after the last few hours with Rod Serling, how long had it been anyway? I figured the smoke in here couldn't be any worse especially with things at a standstill. Being a weekday, there were few people inside and no one behind the bar. The bartender must have been back in the kitchen or downstairs when the time stop occurred. That made things easier for me. I went behind the bar and scanned for the usual stock of liquors, searching for something different until I spied a lovely bottle of Bushmills, 12-year-old single malt, peeking out from a low, dark shelf on the back wall. Better than Mr. Wells is having tonight, I said aloud as I plucked the bottle from its hiding place and found a thick, short glass. I was mid-poor when a woman's voice said, You got Wells, huh? Startled, I spilt expensive whiskey all over the bar and I looked in the direction of the voice. A petite young woman laughed and came toward me. She had sandy blonde hair pulled back into a loose bun and a light sprinkling of freckles on her tiny nose and pleasant, easy smile that perfectly matched her casual stride and comfortable-looking white blouse, faded jeans, and ballet flats attire. She took the bottle of Bushmills from my hand, poured more in the glass, and recapped the bottle while I stood aghast. Using a fresh bar towel, she mopped up the spilt whiskey, chuckled again, and said, "'You better drink that. Looks like you really need it.' I glanced from the glass to her and back to the glass again. I picked it up as requested, hesitated a little by swirling the amber contents around, and finally took a sip, watching her over the rim. 
She stood there, smiling at me, thumbs hooked into the pockets of her snug jeans. Whether it was the surprise I had, or the gaze of a beautiful woman, I barely tasted the whiskey. The gears in my head finally started turning, and I had the awareness to ask, Are you dead or almost dead? She laughed again, her eyes squinting into joyful half-circles. No, I work here. This did nothing but confuse me, since the only other people not frozen in time were me, ghosts, and those who might or should be ghosts. Before I could formulate another question to straighten out this mess within a mess, she said, I'm sorry, it's just that her eyes looked up as she pondered the words. I've known this would happen, yet I didn't know when. I'm Rachel, Rachel Coda. She held out a hand. Her name, Rachel, hit me like a thunderbolt. I'd picked that very name out of the blue in my conversation with King earlier. I stood there, dumbfounded until she spoke again. And yours is? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Dan, Daniel Dunmire. My, my friends just call me Danny, I said, finally taking her small hand in mine and shaking it carefully. Perhaps it was my imagination, but I swear I felt the tingling sensation at her touch. Wow, she said. Even the name is right. Makes me wonder if you're real or if I made you up. I sure hope you're real. She picked up my glass of whiskey and took a sip. I watched her lips press against the glass and hoped she was real too. I made a show of pinching my forearm in demonstration. As far as I know, I'm real. But I haven't been too sure about anything else for... I looked around the bar until I saw an ancient Duquesne Brewing Prince of Pilsner's illuminated clock on the wall. For however long it's been, the clock had stopped at 4.22, but that didn't seem right. That happy giggle escaped her again. (laughs) That clock hasn't worked for ages, she said. Then her voice took on a more serious tone. Do you know how long you have left? It seemed like a strange question to ask in this timeless setting, much less by a person who shouldn't understand any of it. I thought for a moment, and I gave what I hoped she'd at least consider an amusing answer. I don't know, maybe until Wells empties my bottle of Harvey's or Serling runs out of cigarettes? Her eyebrows raised in surprise. You have Wells and Serling? Man, you're lucky. Not with the way he smokes, I said. But how did you know my name in the... She tossed the bar towel under the counter and sat on the stool next to mine. I had Jane Austen and Virginia Woolf, believe it or not. The situation got a little tense between them as C.S. Lewis dropped in to act as a mediator. Austen's the one who kept pestering me to choose a male name she could use in her version of my future life. I always liked Danny, and it's the one I picked. She rotated the glass on the bar's surface for a moment. They told me to expect a meeting like this to happen, but they never gave me a time frame. She grew serious again, reached out and put her hand on mine, and looked into my eyes as if she could see the workings of my mind. You really don't have any idea about your personal time limit, do you? I shrugged. Eh, No, not really. She poured more bushmills took a sip and handed me the glass. Okay, now think hard 
is there anything unusual going on with one of your guests? Some little thing out of the ordinary that keeps occurring over and over again. Something that couldn't possibly happen. I assume you mean something other than time coming to a standstill and having three more or less dead guys arguing in my dining room. You had three of them show up? Four, actually. I downed a healthy slug of whiskey. They brought Stephen King along as an honorary dead man, mostly for remedial training, according to Wells. Rachel shook her head. And here I thought Wolf was catty. Who was the fourth? Joss Whedon. He got called in to take a shot as a ghostwriter when Serling's storyline tanked, so to speak. But isn't Whedon still... Yeah, he's more alive than King is at the moment, but his situation is, well, kind of complicated. Trust me, it would take too long to explain. So how did he do? I can sum it up in one word. Werewolves. You're kidding. Scout's honor, I said and emptied my glass. I made him leave. Good for you. She poured more Bushmills and sampled it again. All right. Let's get back to any unusual habits one of your three little friends might have. Start with Stephen King. Uh, King hates my choices of lunch meat. Uh, He tried to write me a one-way ticket into Salem's lot and kept complaining about, well, about everything. That's got to be his meds talking. Cut him a break. He's probably still in a lot of pain. She handed me the glass. What about Mr. Wells? He's been pontificating about everything under the sun while single-handedly draining my large bottle of Harvey's. Meanwhile, he's hardly did a lick of writing. That sounds par for the course for the ex-wonder kind. What about the bottle? You said it's yours? Damn right. And I was trying to save it for a special occasion, too. Say, do you have any peanuts around here? She went behind the counter, came back with two bags and handed me one. Thanks. Was the bottle's level going down as he imbibed? Sure. And it didn't refill itself? What? No, of course not. How how could it possibly re... And then that's when I had the vision of my great-grandmother's candy dish, piled high with cigarette butts. Serling's lone soft pack of camels was sitting next to it. The unopened bag of peanuts slipped from my fingers and fell to the floor. Danny, are you all right? You look pale as a ghost. Rachel covered her mouth with a hand. Oops, sorry. Poor choice of words. I just sat there, staring off into space and hardly breathing. After a moment, I turned back to her and muttered, Cigarettes. It's gotta be Serling's damned cigarettes. What about his cigarettes? I felt a massive tension headache coming on and I rubbed my eyes trying to concentrate on the image rapidly fading from my mind. I have a large candy dish that Serling commandeered for an ashtray. It was overflowing with a huge mound of cigarette butts from the moment I awoke until I stormed out of the house and came here. Rachel grabbed my arm. Now we're getting somewhere, she said, bouncing excitedly on her bar stool. The whole time I was with my three malcontent buddies, Serling smoked like a blast furnace. He kept pulling cigarette after cigarette out of his one and only pack of camels. It was like an army of clowns spilling out of a miniature car at the circus. She pounded her hands on my forearm and yelled, Yes, yes, that's got to be it! 
And the kicker is that the pile of butts in the candy dish never got any higher. Rachel got to her feet, flung her arms around my neck and hugged me, pulling me off my bar stool in the process. That wonderful smile of hers went ear to ear. You've nailed it, Danny. You found your time limit. She handed me the glass of Bushmills. That deserves another drink. As I put the glass to my lips, I said, Great, but now that I know the key, what do I do about it? Rachel's hazel eyes grew larger. I almost forgot that part. You need to get back. She snatched the glass from my hand and set it on the bar next to the bottle of Bushmills. That will be waiting for you when you're done. Done doing what? She took my hand and led me around the bar toward the door. You've got to go and make them write exactly what you want your life to be like, and it has to be done before Serling runs out of cigarettes. I halted before we got outside. But that won't work. They've been arguing amongst themselves, writing unrealistic scenarios, wasting time drinking and eating and smoking and complaining. They hardly listened to anything I had to say. Then get back there and write it yourself, she said, pulling on my arm. It doesn't have to be a masterpiece, just what you want out of life. Her words reminded me of the crumpled sheet of paper I absentmindedly stuffed in my back pocket as I was walking. I felt for it and noted it was still there. Come on, she said, giving a hearty tug. Get going. There's no telling how many camels Serling has left. She glanced across the room and screamed. I followed her gaze to the broken wall clock. Its hands were spinning. Backwards. Uh, That can't be good, I murmured as I felt my blood turn to ice. Rachel looked at me with terror-stricken eyes. Danny, it's got to be a warning signal. Mr. Serling must be lighting up his last cigarette right now. He'll finish it before you get back. I reached into my pocket, pulled out the wrinkled paper, and showed it to her. Serling gave this to me and suggested I give it a try. Her mouth formed a perfect circle as she gasped in surprise. Let me find a pen. Rachel dropped my hand and then rushed back around the bar. Got it, she yelled and returned seconds later, wide-eyed and nearly hyperventilating. She shoved the pen into my hand and pushed me over to an empty table. Quick, sit down and start writing. I heard the clink and tinkle of melting ice shifting in a glass nearby. We both looked at the older couple seated at the next table. The man's arm had shifted position slightly and the woman's eyes had closed in mid-blink. I nearly dropped my pen. Oh, shit. Time is starting up again. The wall clock's hands were spinning backwards, ever faster now. Come on, come on. Right, 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 she demanded. I can't think with you yelling at me. The clock hands were a blur. Danny, I'm sorry, but you've got to do it now. She kept tapping a finger on the wrinkled sheet of paper like it was a telegraph key. Write something. Write anything, just so long as it's what you want your life to be from here on out. But there's not enough. It doesn't have to be long. A paragraph, a sentence is all it'll take. Hell, even three words will do. That's all I needed. Just three words? I said, glancing hopefully at her. Yes, as long as those three words say what you want right now more than ever. Something that will allow you to make a clean start. Rachel's last two words reminded me of a statement Serling had made earlier. I put pen to paper, scribbled a three-word sentence, and showed it to her as I stood up. Perfect! She kissed me on the lips and pushed me toward the door. Now go! I ran out onto the street, 
noting that everything had changed positions. All of the people and animals on the sidewalks and the cars and the trucks and the street were moving in ultra-slow motion now. Everything was creeping along at a barely perceptible pace. My ears picked up a continuous groaning sound. It was coming from all around me. The low glacial rumble of a frozen world returning to life. Darting past barely moving vehicles, I made my way back home. As I neared my street, I smiled at the sight of old Mr. Jenkins and the slow motion act of hitting the surprised pickpocket's head with his walking cane. At last, my house came into view. The front door was still open. I ran through the doorway, jumped over the living room couch, and skidded to a stop at the entrance of my dining room. Mr. Serling was seated there alone. The table was bare, except for my great-grandmother's ceramic candy dish, which was empty and wiped spotlessly clean. The only cigarette in evidence was the stub in Serling's right hand. Despite that, there wasn't the slightest odor of cigarettes in the air. Shocked and speechless, I pointed to the two previously occupied chairs. Serling laughed. Orson and Stephen decided to go out for a drink together since their work here is finished. Believe it or not, they're actually getting along quite famously now. Their work finished? I muttered in despair. I'm, I'm too late, right? He leaned back in his chair, took one last puff on his camel, and blew out a beautiful, geometrically perfect smoke ring. With a contented sigh, he flicked the cigarette stub through the smoke ring's center and both vanished without a trace. No, Mr. Dunmire, not at all. You managed to heed Rachel's sage advice just in time. You know about her? He raised one of his bushy eyebrows. After today's events, you really don't need me to answer that question, do you, Mr. Dunmire? No, I guess not. He pointed at the crumpled sheet of paper still clutched in my hand. Let's see what you wrote. I handed it to him. He looked it over, gave it back to me, and said, Excellent, Mr. Dunmire. Excellent. By the way, there's a fresh bottle of Harvey's in the kitchen and a nice selection of imported Italian salamis in your refrigerator. I glanced toward the kitchen and saw a large, unopened bottle of Harvey's on the counter, just like he said. I turned back to thank him, but he was gone, as suddenly as his last smoke ring. From outside, I could hear Mrs. Olson calling her son Jimmy in for supper over the racket of Harry's lawnmower engine. Things were back to normal. In a daze, I stuffed the paper in my pocket and wandered into the living room, trying to make sense of everything that had happened. The TV was still on and another Twilight Zone was just starting. Season 1. Episode 32, A Passage for Trumpet. That's the one where Jack Klugman's down-on-his-luck trumpet player gets a second chance at life. I wasn't particularly unlucky, and I certainly wasn't a musician of any sort, but my own life had been rather lonely up to this point. I smiled, realizing that now I had a new chance for a happier life with Rachel. Rachel. Rachel Coda, I said out loud. Dear God, I gotta get back to her. I grabbed my keys, ran outside, and jumped into my 10-year-old dark green Hyundai hatchback. Luckily, it fired up right away, and I tore off heading for the corner bar. I burned rubber the entire way, except while passing the block where a police officer was putting the now-handcuffed pickpocket into his patrol car's back seat. 
There was a single parking space available on the street, two doors down from the bar. I jammed the Hyundai into the tight spot, shoved the quarter in the parking meter, and ran into the bar. Rachel was nowhere to be seen. The older couple was still seated at the table near the door, and a male bartender was filling a large glass mug with a draft blue moon. But there was no Rachel. Maybe she was just a figment of my imagination. Maybe none of what I thought I'd experienced had really happened. Maybe I was just nuts. I glanced at the broken Duquesne Brewing wall clock. It was still halted at 4.22, one hand covering the other. Both stopped at the same point in time. I heard a female voice behind me say, That clock hasn't worked for ages, Danny. I spun around and saw her standing there with my glass of Bushmills in her hand. She smiled that winsome smile of hers, handed me the glass and said, You've got a couple friends here that want to say hello. She guided me over to the corner booth occupied by Orson Welles and Stephen King. Well done, Mr. Dunmire, Welles and King said in unison as we sat down opposite them. It felt weird. Sitting there in a booth for four and only two of us had our images reflected on the mirrored surfaces of the adjoining walls. Wells spoke first. We didn't want to leave without finding out what you had finally chose to write, Mr. Dunmire. I handed the paper to him. He laughed heartily and gave it to King. King read it out loud. A blank slate. Well, I'll be a son of a... He started laughing, too. (laughs) So you want to write a story of your life on a blank slate all by yourself, and you chose Serling's own words almost verbatim. Way to go, Mr. Dunmire. Way to go. Wells leaned toward Rachel. And you, my dear... What were the three words you mentioned having chosen? Rachel grinned and said, It was almost the same as Danny's. A blank page. Excellent choice of words, my dear, Wells said as he kissed her hand. Unfortunately, Stephen and I must take our leave now. Wells and King rose from their seats and headed toward the door, arms draped over each other's shoulder. While fading from view, as ghost and almost ghost are wont to do, I heard Wells paraphrase Humphrey Bogart's Rick character from the end of Casablanca. Stephen, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Wicked Library. Today's episode featured a story called The Screenplay by Chuck Rackage, with a little help from his friends, Cynthia Lohman, Yurina Swan, and Mark Seeley. If you'd like more information on Chuck and his work, please visit the show notes for this episode. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, Shadows at the Door, Rickert and Beagle Books, HorrorMade.com, Cathedral Sounds, Stigmata Studios, and SanitariumMagazine.com. Please share the terror, share the show, and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to rate us in iTunes. Ratings are free and mean a lot to us. They also help us grow the audience for the show. Follow us on Twitter at Wicked Library. Find us on Facebook and subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or Google. We're everywhere. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to get great prizes, bonus content, and more. 
You can sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Society 13 was performed by Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rosick and performed by Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and creator, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 618. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead. Leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the dead men to find your restroom. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library. Kettle Whistle Radio. Night Story Podcast. Prog Watch. Red Horse Radio. The Lift. History Goes Bomb. Listen. The M Writing Podcast. Society 13. Rebuilding Society. One podcast at a time. <laughs> <laughs>